Sammy, you left your take me to Chili's poem up here. I'm gonna sit. I'm gonna sit it down here. Um, I want to say thank you to uh, the worship team from UT. I myself am not a musician, um, and but I've come to appreciate. I was I was talking to Matt Howe before uh, this conference started, and when I was a campus minister. I was always so thankful when we had a group of musicians who just like took the ball and ran with it and just lugged equipment around and set it up and and helped choose songs that were thoughtful and these guys have done a great job so thank you guys for helping us uh, to worship God. So um, we've seen Jesus we've been watching Jesus as he comes as he comes out of the grave and we've just been asking this question of where does he go? Um, who does he move to? And when you're reading the Gospels, and the, the four Gospels are just telling you about the, the ministry of Jesus, um, this is a question you can always ask, is just to watch him. And like I've said a few times already before, and when you're watching Jesus, we remember that this is the second person of the Trinity who has taken on flesh, that he is the radiance of God's glory, and the, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. And so we want to pay attention to him. And we've seen him immediately move towards somebody we would have never expected him to move towards. That he chooses somebody who would have been very low in her culture and low in society, um, who had kind of a troubled past, to say the least. And Jesus finds her the morning that he comes out of the grave. And he moves to this woman, towards this woman in her tears. He finds his disciples, and as we looked at this morning, um, he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't scorn them. He doesn't do all the things that we might expect him to do. Instead, Jesus just offers them peace. He offers them his grace. And then tonight, we're going to continue on in John chapter 20, and we're going to see him encounter another one of his disciples who, once again, um, is having some issues and is struggling a lot. And we're going to watch how Jesus deals with Thomas. And so if you want to turn to John chapter 20 again, we're going to look at verses 24 through 31. This is God's word. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to them, said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Let me pray for us.
Father, we pray um, as we come again to your word, as we look at your son Jesus and how he deals with people like us who have grief and fear and doubt and failure in our own lives and are worried and concerned about how you might approach us and what you might think of us and would you possibly offer grace and kindness to people like us. Father, we thank you for your word and what it shows us tonight, and I pray that what it would bring to us, maybe if we're here tonight just asking questions about Christianity, just wondering um, what does it look like, what does it mean to encounter Jesus, Father, I pray that you would give us the gift um, of belief tonight, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. It's about 2005, I had a little bit of a medical scare, I want to tell you about it. Okay, this has nothing to do with the sermon. I'm just going to tell you about it. Um, just wanted to talk about that tonight. No, I had a medical scare, and um, let me give you a little bit of background first. So this is 2005, 13 years ago. So my kids, I just had two kids at the time, and they were they were really young. They were really little. They were like preschool age. And you've seen little kids running around the camp this weekend. You're familiar with children, right? And what you know, if you don't know anything else about kids, what you know is this: they're filthy. I mean, they're just filthy. Right? They put their fingers in things that they shouldn't put their fingers in, and then they put them in their mouth, and they're like walking petri dishes, okay? So this was the age where my kids were like, you know, when you would feed them, like most of the food would be on the walls and on the floor and all that. So you get the picture. So they're going to preschool, they're going to nursery at church, and they're just like picking up germs. And at the same time, I'm working on a college campus. I'm an RUF campus minister. You people are in college, right? And so you know that colleges are like germ breeding facilities. Um, You have all of these people living together, eating together, going to class together, and you're just sharing germs. There's just sickness everywhere. Am I right? Is that true? Has it gotten any better? Yeah, so everyone, you know, somebody gets like a stomach virus and it's like wipes out half the campus. So... So I'm, you know, up until this point in my life, what I'm realizing is that I kind of prided myself on never being sick. I was just sort of like, I'm like, I like, I don't get those people who get sick all the time. Like, it's like it's their fault, you know? It's like, what's wrong with them? They're so weak. And so I hit this stage in my life where I was sick all the time. Like, I was missing work. I was feeling horrible. I felt run down. And around that same time, I just kind of thought, you know, this has something to do with the environment that I'm in and my filthy children. So I thought, I love you kids, sorry, I keep calling you filthy. Um, (laughs) And so at the same time, I had like one day, I was just, you know, sitting at my desk doing some work, and I happened to like scratch the side of my face. I felt a lump, a lump that had not been there before. You don't want to feel a lump, right? Right. Kids, if you feel a lump, go to the doctor. And so I didn't do that right away. What I did is what most people do first is they get on the internet. And I thought, well, there's surely an explanation for this on WebMD. And so by the time I was done with like a two-hour session of exploring what this lump could be on the side of my face, I was pretty sure that I only had about four or five days left to live. And so I thought, well, maybe I should get a second opinion. And uh, so I go to the doctor. And I get to the doctor, and he asks me, you know, a million questions, looks at it, examines me, and he basically says, you know, this could be either like a, just a little cyst, or it could be lymphoma. And I was like, okay, those are two really different things, right? Those are not this, those aren't the same at all. Like, so how do we figure out what it is? And he said, well, let's biopsy it. So we, we biopsy it, and it turns out 
it was um, it was it's called a pleomorphic adenoma. Okay, so it was a it was a benign um, tumor that was on my salivary gland. And he throws out, you know, in the midst of this, he's telling me what it is. And he's like, you know, it's weird. This mostly only occurs in middle-aged women. And I was like, <laughs> okay. I don't know why you had to tell me that. I'm already feeling really vulnerable and scared right now. And so, um, anyway, so he basically says, you know, it's, this is not going to kill you, but we have to take it out. And so we need to make an appointment with a surgeon. And so I make an appointment with a surgeon. I go in to talk to him. And he's like one of those guys who's like, you're, you're hoping this guy was really good at what he does um, because he's really bad at explaining it. Um, it's like when he was in med school and they had like the class on bedside manner and how to approach patients, he slept in or just didn't go to that class. He was basically like, okay, we're going to rip your face open and we're going to fold it back, right? And I was like, I don't want to know, like, I really don't want to know what you're going to do. I just want you to take it out. And so he gets to the end, and he's like, and I'm like, well, what are the, ri- like, what are the risks involved in this? And he's like, well, some people die in surgery, but that's really rare. Um, but he was like, but there is this, you, you have a main facial nerve that runs through this tumor that you have. And he's like, you know, it's really delicate. It's a really delicate surgery. And so, you know, when we take that out, sometimes we have to move, you know, we move it around a lot. Um, worst case scenario, we nick that facial nerve or even sever it. And I said, well, you know, what does that mean? And he says, well, you know, partial facial paralysis, like one side of your face would be paralyzed. And he's like, have a good day. We'll see you in, in the morning. Remember not to eat or drink anything after midnight. You know, I get to my car and literally I like, I hold it together. I close the door and I just start crying. Because I was like, I don't want to do this. Like, I have to talk in front of people, like, for a living. And if, like, half my face is paralyzed, that could be really bad. And so it turns out he was a really good surgeon. Um, he just didn't know how to, he had no people skills. Didn't know how to talk to people. Um, but he knew how to peel my face back and do an operation. And so I'm thankful for that. Um, the downside of the whole operation was this. I'll just throw this in free of charge. Um, when, you're, when you cut open half of your salivary gland, in a certain percentage of people, your salivary gland can reattach to your sweat glands. And so when you eat something that's either really delicious or really spicy, you can sweat profusely out of the side of your face. My kids like this. It's called Frey Syndrome, and I have it. And so tomorrow morning, you'll probably be looking at me if we have something especially savory and going, is his face sweating? Why do I tell you that story? What does that have to do with anything? Well, I I tell you that whole story because I want to ask you this question. That was a fairly detailed story, but I could have made it up. I could have, have, you know, fabricated the whole thing for some odd reason just to entertain you for a few minutes. So let me ask you this question. How do you know the story is true? How do you know it's true? Well, I mean, you could think, well, I don't know him that well, but he seems like, you know, he's a pastor. I'm supposed to believe what he says, maybe. I don't know. And he seems somewhat trustworthy, and he's friends maybe with my campus minister. And Yeah, but how do you know the story's true? Well, one way that you can know that it's true, and I'm not inviting you to come do this at this moment, but you could come and look at my scar. And it runs, you know, from a little bit above my ear down kind of to my jawline, and there's like a hunk of flesh that's sort of taken out and you could poke me right there like I am right now and I don't really feel it that much because it's really dead 
you could look at my scar. And the thing is, scars, they, they always, they tell a story, right? They always have a story that is behind them. I mean, if you think about in this room right now, this is going to be a really weird thought. It's a weird thing to think about. Think about how many scars are in this room right now. Like, I wonder if we were to, like, count the number of scars that are in this room. Like, you're starting to look at yourself right now. Because there's just hundreds and hundreds of scars um, in this room. And every one of them, so this is just not long ago, I was sitting with somebody at lunch, and we were talking, and they had a big scar on their arm. And I was like, oh, what happened? And they launch into this story. And the story was actually about this melanoma, and it, it led into this whole big thing. It was a huge part of their life. Their, story, their, their scar tell, tells a story. And I think in this passage, um, what John is doing is, is he's drawing attention at the end of his gospel to Jesus' scars over and over again. Because he's letting these scars tell us a story that we need to hear. But I think sometimes, like the man in this passage, this, this man Thomas, this disciple Thomas, is that our own our own wounds and our own scars sort of get in the way. They get in the way of us hearing and they get in the way of us believing. And so, and they bring some doubt into our life. And that may not make sense, but I'm going to explain what I mean by that in a minute. Because what I want to talk about tonight is the scars in our own life that bring disbelief. And then these wounds, these scars of Jesus that are designed and to bring belief into our life. What about the scar, these scars that bring doubt? I, I want to I talk for a minute, first of all, about Thomas. I feel bad for this guy. Um, you know, it's like he made it into the Bible, but then he got a nickname. You know what his nickname is? Doubting Thomas. Like, you know, he's like, yeah, I'm in the Bible. I'm doubting. You know, it's like uh, he doesn't want to really say what happened. I think Thomas actually gets kind of a bad rap. I don't think that his doubt is the thing that actually should define who he is. Like, we shouldn't put that as an adjective in front of his name. Um, Because we find Thomas in another place, a couple other places in John, but in one place in particular, and it's back in John chapter 11. And what happens in John chapter 11 is that Lazarus has died. And Jesus and his disciples get word that this friend of theirs, Lazarus, is dead. And basically, they're trying to determine, should they go back to Judea um, in order to help, and in order to visit, and in order to see what's going on? And all the rest of the disciples are unanimous in the fact that they shouldn't. And they had a really good reason why they shouldn't go back to Judea, because they just left Judea. And the reason they left Judea is that people were trying to kill them. It's a good reason. I feel like of the reasons not to go to a place, people trying to kill me is usually like a pretty good reason not to go to a place. Come to Fall Conference. There'll be people there who are trying to kill you. You're like, I'm all right. I'm going to stay on campus this weekend. Thomas says this. This is his other line. Thomas says, let us go with you, Jesus, so that we may die with you. Let, that's, that's who Thomas was. I mean, Thomas said, Hey, we should go with you, and if we die when we're there, let us, let us do that. Let's go with you, Jesus. Why did Thomas say that? Because Thomas loved Jesus. He loved him. He had been with him. He had seen him. He had been ministered to by Jesus, and he absolutely loved Jesus to the point, at least in his mind, he was able to think that he wanted to even die with Jesus. 
And I think because of that, the death of Jesus has particularly devastated Thomas. He's beside himself. He doesn't know really what to do. He's scared to actually believe because what if he's wrong? And here's a man who's ready to die for Jesus. And now Jesus is gone and he's crushed. And the others come to him and they say to him, we saw him. But Thomas says, you know, I, don't, I can't do that. I can't go there with you. I can't just listen to your testimony and believe. I need to actually touch his wounds. I need to touch his scars. What might cause Thomas to disbelieve? I think maybe part of it is this. I think Thomas feels abandoned by God. I think Thomas feels so wounded himself that he feels at this point that God doesn't really care. Have you ever been in a place where something so bad happened that you were like, I don't know that I can believe Because how can I believe when this is actually my experience? How can I believe in you when the things in my life are so difficult and so hard? I don't want to believe. I don't want to believe in you. And you see, he wants so badly to believe, but he's so wounded and he's so scarred himself. And I think that we can relate to that. Eugene Peterson, he says this. He says, belief in God does not exempt us from feelings of abandonment by God. Praising God does not inoculate us from doubts about God. Meditating devoutly on God's word does not establish us safely in the arms of Jesus. Does not insulate us from all feelings of abandonment and darkness and aridity. And I think one of the reasons that what Peterson says is true of our experiences is because we we live in a world that is really, really hard. And we live in a world where we're constantly hurt and scarred and wounded by other people, and we are constantly hurt and scarred and wounded by ourselves. We live in a world full of sinful people. We live in a world that is bent inwards toward itself, and then we ourselves are part of that problem. And so we're people who are wounded. We're people who are scarred, and we're people who are hurt, and it makes, us, it makes belief difficult. It makes belief difficult. Let's just be honest about that. What do I mean by being wounded by others? I think we talk about the way our own sin um, deceives us and hurts us a lot, but I think that maybe one of the things that we don't think about as much is the way that the wounds that we've received from other people um, contribute to our doubt, and they contribute to our disbelief, and they contribute to our pain. If you've lived in this world uh, for 10 minutes, you've been hurt by somebody. You've been wounded by somebody. You know, when we come into my church um, in Greenville, we confess our sin every week. And one of the things we confess is not only the things that we've done, but the things that we've left undone. Um, you, have, you have not been loved in the way that you should be loved. And you're wounded by that. And you're hurt by that. Um, you've had things said to you that hurt you. And you carry them like a scar. You know, when we're little, we say that little phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a crock of stuff, right? That's bad. Like, no, that's not true. Because I would almost rather you throw sticks and stones at me because I'll get over that. But words, I can remember words that people said to me in third grade. And maybe you've 
you've had that same experience. I imagine you have. Like where somebody said to you at some point, you're kind of overweight. And you thought, that became a thing that just sort of defined how you saw yourself all the time. Maybe somebody said to you, um, you know, you're, you're not like that bright, are you? And that you began to kind of go, maybe that's true about me. Maybe I'm really not that bright. Maybe somebody made a comment about the fact that, you know, some part of your, your, your body, some part of your face, and you, you found yourself over time just kind of fixating on that. You, you can't let it go, that you want to change it. But those words, they just, they stuck with you. And it doesn't matter sometimes like how many times people tell you, like, oh, you're so wonderful, or you, I love you. you there's this scar there. That it, it's almost like I can't believe some of the good things that you're saying because this, this wound in me is preventing me from believing it. I think that's what's going on in this passage. Maybe it was a parent who continually said hurtful things. Maybe it was a teacher who sort of picked on you and humiliated you. Maybe it was um, somebody you dated who was um, actually verbally abusive to you or emotionally abusive. And those words, they left their scars, and, and, they, and they not only stand in the way of thinking others will love us, but they're a huge barrier a lot of times, and I think we have to own this, to really believing what Jesus says about us. That not only do they stand in the way of going like, maybe other people won't accept me, but if we're really honest with ourselves, some of those things stand in the way of actually believing that Jesus would move toward me in love. Because I'm this wounded, scarred person. For some of those, for some of us, those, those scars even run deeper. Some of us have been taken advantage of, and we've been violated, maybe by people who were even supposed to protect us and supposed to care for us. And those things, they leave real, true wounds and scars in our life that seem to touch everything in our existence. And there's people in this room who know exactly what I mean by that and know what I'm talking about. And we think in our minds, can, can this be true if my experience is this? Can this be true if I've been treated this way by others? Can this actually be true? But we also have, we have self-inflicted wounds, Right? And we know about these. I mean, these are wounds that may even some ways be more difficult because they are self-inflicted. There's the perpetual, continual sin that we participate in over and over and over again. And it leaves marks, right? It has consequences that we want to stop, but a lot of times we just can't. And it causes sometimes a, a cycle of shame and guilt through which we kind of see everything. And in each time we maybe enter back in to, to maybe a particular sin, we, we feel this, this barrier of shame that covers us and says to us, you see, you're not worthy of love. This couldn't possibly be true. You're not worthy of it. I had a student a while back who she had been she had been wounded by other people in some pretty horrific ways. And as a result, 
um, she was wounding herself, literally. So she had been wounded by other people, and then she had got caught in the cycle of, of, of cutting herself and wounding herself and talking to herself in a way that was just just hard to hear. And I remember looking at, we, had, we just met all the time, and I remember looking at her one day, and she's saying to me, I just like, how? I cannot believe that God would want anything to do with me. You ever felt that way? What about maybe the fact that Thomas, we give him a hard time, but maybe Thomas is just a lot like us. Maybe he's just really hurt. Maybe he's just really wounded. Maybe that's why the wounds of Thomas are so particularly important to him, that he says, i got to see these, and I've got to touch these. Maybe if I can meet a Savior who is wounded, maybe if I could touch his hands, maybe if I could put my hand into his side, is what John says, which is just this really graphic image, that I could put my hand into his side. Maybe if, if I were to meet a wounded healer, then he would be able to address my own wounds, my own scars. Maybe this is why the wounds of Jesus um, resonate with me so much, and maybe they resonate with you as well. Why does Jesus, why, why, have you ever thought, why do these scars remain? I mean, have you noticed in, in this chapter that at the, at the end of John's gospel, Jesus' scars, they take this central role. Why, do, why are they still there? Jesus' body has obviously changed. I mean, this is the second time he's appeared in a room that had a closed door. And so his body's different, I think. It's not like it used to be because it passes through walls. It, he would be able then to heal these wounds. But these wounds remain. They're still there because every scar tells a story and Jesus' scars are a story that he wants us to hear eternally, forever. He wants us to be able to see them. He wants us to be able one day, and you will, to be able to one day touch them. To touch his wounds and to put your hand into his side. He wants, us to, he wants these wounds to proclaim to us, my death is real and my resurrection is real. He has this resurrected body, but these scars are still there. He wants you to know, I really did this. I really entered into the pain of this world. I really entered into the wounds of this world. I really entered into your wounds, the ones that were inflicted on you by others and the ones that, yes, you have inflicted upon yourself when you meet Jesus, and you will. Everyone will. There is a day that everyone will meet Jesus. You know that, right? His scars will be there. And the reason this causes such a turnaround for Thomas is because what he has seen is that Jesus has entered into the violence and the death of this world, that he didn't stand at a distance. That, he, that, the God, that our God, this is what he's like, he didn't send down simply a list of things for us to do. That he came into the world. That he received the mocking and the spittle and the lashings and the beating. That he endured the cross. That he entered into the violence of this world. That he's a man of sorrows 
the Bible tells us, and he's acquainted with much grief. Jesus knows your wounds and scars. That's the reason that he came, that he took them upon himself. There's that famous passage in Isaiah, this prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah. There's a section where he's talking about this this suffering servant who's coming. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Messiah. And he says these words that I imagine when the readers who heard this prophet for the first time, they, they, they didn't quite understand, like, who is he talking about? Because this is, this is not their perception of what a Messiah was going to look like. A Messiah would come and bring victory. They would bring victory with power. They would bring victory with might. They would bring victory probably with military warfare is what they were thinking. And the prophet talks about this Messiah who's coming, this Jesus who is coming. And this is what he says. He was despised and he was rejected by men. A man of sorrow and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. It is by his wounds that we are healed. It is it's through his cross that we're actually made whole. And this is why, and think about this for a minute, this is why the teaching of Jesus, as wonderful as it was, because he was Jesus, was not enough for Thomas. The teaching of Jesus was not enough for Thomas. And think about this for a minute. Thomas heard way more of the teaching of Jesus than any of us have ever heard. And it was not enough. Alone, it was not the teaching of Jesus by itself for Thomas in this passage before he touches these wounds. It was not enough for Thomas to be good news. Good news for Thomas was about what Jesus had done. It was about what Jesus had accomplished. And I think we live in a world that for many people, they think, well, I love the teaching of Jesus. It's beautiful, and it is. I love the thought that we should love one another. I love the thought that we should turn the other cheek. But do we really need all this death and resurrection stuff? Is that really necessary? Without the cross and without his wounds and without the resurrection, let me just put it plainly, there isn't any good news. It's not good news. It's nice advice from another really amazing prophet that you need to follow. It was not enough hope. For Thomas, because he knew himself better than that, and it shouldn't be enough hope by itself for us. It's the wounds of Jesus that make Thomas proclaim, my Lord and my God. Why did they make him proclaim that? Because what Thomas knew about himself is this, that Jesus had to die for my inability to keep his teaching. His teaching alone was not enough because Jesus had to come and bear the weight of, And the penalty of me and my inability, like the rest of us in this room, for one minute to be able by ourselves to keep his teaching. This is where Jesus meets Thomas. Isn't it so kind of him to do this? 
Isn't Jesus so gentle with him to come and let him? You know, we're told that, that they come back and report this to Thomas. We've seen Jesus, and he says, I'm not going to believe unless I touch his wounds. Jesus appears later. And the first thing he does is say is repeat these words, peace be with you. And he says, Thomas, come here. I want to show you something. I want you to touch. I want you to touch me. And so maybe the question that I'll end with tonight is this, and I think this is a really logical question that you may be sitting here tonight and you may say, well, that's great for Thomas. Good for Thomas. I can't touch his wounds. I can't see him. I wish he would appear here tonight. I wish that he would allow me to approach him and touch his wounds. And I want you to think about this. Don't pass over the fact that Jesus tells Thomas this. He tells him this. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You see, there's this gentle, he is very gentle with Thomas, but he also is rebuking Thomas in a certain way. He's rebuking him very gently. Jesus is saying, the others told you. They came and told you. And listen, Thomas, you should have believed them. Their testimony was true. I'm going to let you touch me. I'm going to let you see my wounds. But Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And this is for John. I mean, he takes this as a segue because this is the climax of the book for him. This is what John has been leading his readers to the whole time. And what does he say? He says, basically, there's lots of other things that Jesus has done. John only records 21 days of Jesus's life, approximately. But I have written specifically, I have picked out these things for you tonight for you sitting here tonight. I picked these things out to record for you because I am an eyewitness and my testimony is true and I touched his wounds and I laid my head upon his breast and I looked into the tomb myself and now I am writing to you so that you might see and that you might also believe, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you might have life in his name. We have to bring our wounded selves to the wounded healer and they are bearing, it's incredible to me to think that they are bearing witness still tonight of what they saw. And the Spirit is working tonight based on their testimony. And tonight, the reason that I'm here is that I am a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That I, what I have been called to do is proclaim that this testimony is true. And their words are true. And today is the day of salvation. One of the men in that room that night, Peter, who we're going to look at tomorrow, years later, he wrote to some of the early Christians. And these are people who had been converted and um, mainly Gentiles, and they were being persecuted for it. And they were suffering um, in ways that we cannot imagine. And the wounds that they were seeing around them and that they were about to have in their own body were causing fear and they were causing doubt. And Peter writes to them to encourage them. The one who was in that room with Jesus that night. And this is what Peter says. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There are scars whose story is so great and so true and so beautiful 
that they can rewrite the story of your scars. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. You know what his scars say? His scars say that they say your name. They have your name written in his scars. Let me pray. Father, there is no other God like you. There is no other God who enters in to the rebellion and the violence and the hurt and the pain and the doubt and the fear and the failure of our lives. But you alone are the true God. And we praise you tonight. We praise you for the teaching of Jesus. We praise you for the truth that he proclaims. We praise you for all of the things that we want to follow that he said. But Father, tonight we praise you especially for the the wounds and the scars that he bears in his body, even as he stands next to your throne right now at this very moment, like a lamb who was slain. Father, we thank you that he was wounded for our transgressions, so that by his stripes that we may be healed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all say the words with us. Thanks, Pam.